The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started, and I'll just just give you a 20-second introduction to who I am. My name is Brian Borgman, and I pastor Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. We uh, planted that church 20 years ago, 1993. And um, I have a wonderful wife, Ariel, and I have a grown daughter, grown married daughter, Ashley. And um, let's see, got to make sure no one from our church is in here, and she's going to have a baby. So uh, I'm really excited about that. Um, so excited I can't see straight, actually. But um, And then I've got two boys, uh, Zach and Alex, uh, almost 21 and almost... 18. So anyway, well, let's uh, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for uh, the message we heard this afternoon and the wonderful, sweet reminder of your grace and mercy to us, which abounds to us in Christ. And Father, we thank you that uh, that you've brought us here. We thank you for the opportunity that we have for uh, iron to sharpen iron and for us to learn and grow. And uh, we commit this this time to you, and we pray that you would use it for your glory in our counseling. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, a few years ago, um, I wrote a book called uh, Feelings and Faith, and so Craig Marshall, a friend said, so you're now known as the emotions guy. <laughs> I really wish that weren't true, actually. Um, but I do think that actually the emotions play a very, very important role in counseling. And, and what, my, what my experience has been, it's, it's limited, but what my experience has been, what my exposure has been, is that oftentimes in biblical counseling, we don't give much emphasis to the role of the emotions. And so what I'd like to do in this session and then the, the next one tomorrow is to deal with basically the role in the emotions, the role of the emotions in biblical counseling. And I'd like to start by presenting to you a, a real case. Um, a few years ago, we had a lady in our church and I had heard through some very concerned church members, that she was thinking of leaving her husband and her children to supposedly go and live by herself and pursue her own life. And so I sat down with her, made an appointment with her. It was actually very difficult. She didn't want to meet, but I just kept you know, harassing her basically, sat down with her. And uh, as we were talking and, you know, you're bringing the Bible to bear on, on you can't make this decision. This is a terrible decision. Um, she got to the point where she said, okay, I, I won't leave my husband and my kids. I realize I can't do this. So she made, at least at that point, the right decision. But she was still depressed, still didn't want to be at home, was still repulsed by her husband, still irritable with her kids. 
And so my, my question to us as, as people that are trying to help other people with God's word is, is this. Was the right decision actually good enough? The answer, I think, should be no, because what we have is a person who at least temporarily made the right decision. Now, by the way, as to no surprise to you, within six months, she was gone. All right. So what we have is a person who made the right decision. They they conformed externally by not leaving but I would submit to you that when she walked out the door, even though she'd made the right decision, she was still in sin. Because there were attitudes and emotions in her heart that were not in alignment with the Word of God. Because the Bible tells us, for instance, that, uh, that she was supposed to love her husband and love her children, Titus chapter 2. And she left making the mere externally right decision and yet, um, on the inside, there was still rebellion and resistance, and her heart was very, very far from where it needed to be. And so, um, I would suggest that, it, that in part, not the whole thing, but in part, um, trying to deal with a person's emotions is exemplified by that story, which could be multiplied a hundred times over. Now, I, I, let me paint some common um, perceptions, or if you will, misperceptions, on the role of the emotions. Um, this comes from a book, and you'll realize why I won't tell you what book it is. Um, this person wrote, as a saved person, you can control your mind and your will, but not your feelings. God's plan is for us to believe him and choose to submit ourselves to his loving care and authority, regardless how we feel. Jesus could not control his emotions when he walked on planet Earth, so why should we? Now, um, I think that that's actually just not only profoundly wrong, but probably nearly blasphemous, especially the part regarding our Savior. Um, in, in the self-confrontation manual, very, very helpful in many, many ways, there's a note. It says, note, God's word never commands you to change your feelings, but you are commanded to change your deeds by being obedient to Scripture. I would suggest that the downplaying of the emotions um, seen in these two examples is actually tragic. And it's tragic when it comes to counseling. Um, I think it's tragic across the board, but especially when it comes to counseling. Let's go back to our young wife and mother and apply both of these statements. And so you tell her, listen, as a saved person, presumably a saved person, uh, you can control your mind, you can control your will, and what God's will for you is is to make the right decision right now by the act of the will, and he doesn't care how you feel. I think that's wrong. I think it's wrong. Um, or what about uh, the advice from the self-confrontation manual? Um, listen, you are to change your deeds, which, of course, she did, but the Bible does not tell you that you are to feel any different about your husband or your children or your life. I think that is profoundly wrong. Um, one of the uh, often missing notes in our counseling is dealing with the emotions. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who... Um, was not known to be a touchy-feely kind of guy. Wrote this in his book, Spiritual Depression. Anybody read Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones? One of the best. 
Lloyd-Jones made this observation. He says, I regard it as a great part of my calling in the ministry to emphasize the priority of the mind and the intellect in connection with the faith. But though I maintain that, I am equally ready to assert that the feelings, the emotions, the sensibilities obviously are of very vital importance. We have been made in such a way that they play a dominant part of our makeup. Indeed, I suppose that one of the greatest problems in our life in this world, not only for Christians, but for all people, is the right handling of our feelings and emotions. Oh, the havoc that is wrought and the tragedy, the misery and the wretchedness that we are to be, that we are to be found in the world simply because people do not know how to handle their feelings. Man is so constituted that the feelings are in this very prominent position and indeed there is a very good case for saying that perhaps the final thing which regeneration and the new birth do for us is just as it puts the mind in its right position, so it puts the emotions in their right position. So I, I would I would wholeheartedly agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, one of the reasons why we perhaps have not given a proper um, place to the emotions in counseling is because we don't understand what the emotions are designed to do. I remember as a new Christian, there was a little book um, called um, emotions, can you trust them? And the the basic answer, of course, was no. And and then, of course, I was raised up on um, uh, you know on gospel tracks that said uh, you know that feelings are the caboose and they don't really matter. Maybe they're there, maybe they're not. And so we get this this idea that really what matters is 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 not the emotion. But let me just let me just point out something here, and that is the emotions are an inherent part of what it means to be a human being made in the image and likeness of God. And our emotions actually tell us something about what's going on inside of us. They're not just sort of neutral feelings. Our emotions actually express values and evaluations of persons and our emotions, whether we like it or not, influence our motives and our conduct. And so we can tell a lot by a person uh, uh, over the things that they uh, engage their feelings over, right? Um, We believe this, at least inherently, when it comes to our Christian faith, right? Um, I I don't think any of us would say that um, the worship of God should be void of feeling, Um, void of emotion that we should actually just, I mean, if that was the case, you know what we would do? We would just read the words to the hymns instead of sing them. All right. Um, And so we know at least inherently that 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 the emotions are to be engaged. And so you have Jonathan Edwards saying things like, I find it uh, my task to raise the emotions of my hearers as high as possible, but only with truth and things like that. So we understand that the emotions do tell us something. So if, if, if my heart is engaged in worship, what is that doing? That is expressing that I value God's worth in the act of worship. Okay. Um, if I watch my my son 
um, you know, score 30 points and get 15 rebounds in a basketball game, and I'm going berserk, uh, just, you know, and, and my other son's telling me, calm down, Dad, calm down. You know what? I'm excited. Why am I excited? Because I, I love that kid, and I'm delighting in the fact that he's doing well, right? And so you don't have to act crazy to display emotion. You can do it quite uh, stoically, you know, if, if you're Dutch, you can just, you know, just, <laughs> but, uh, but really what we, what we've, what we've missed is that the emotions actually express stuff that's going on inside of our hearts. And, um, this has been brought home to me in, in huge ways. I did two workshops on, uh, on adoption. And, um, this, even the stuff you get angry about is a reflection of what's going on in your heart, what you really value. Right. So we've downplayed the emotions. They play a very important part. And so the goal of this workshop is actually how do we help counselees to see that God, in fact, does care about how they feel and how their emotions are an indicator of their heart. Uh, next workshop, we'll talk about how to help people handle their emotions through truth. But uh, this is basically just to try to convince us that we really do need to pay attention to the emotions in our counseling. And we're going to begin with some theology. Now, last night, Bob uh, Bob said, remember, theology is foundational. Remember the pastor that said, hey, can't you just get past the theology and just get to the practical stuff? Um, we have to do this part that is foundational because, uh, first of all, um, some people are, are skeptical that this is really an important thing. Um, but even if you think it is an important thing, you need to know why it's an important thing. All right? So we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but these are the theological foundations. First of all, the character of God. As we read our Bibles, what do we see? We see time and time and time again Bible passages that reflect what we could call God's emotivity, right? God actually has and expresses emotion. Now, <clears throat> take Genesis 6, for instance. What emotion is displayed from God in Genesis 6? Anybody? Okay, disappointment? What's what's the word that's used? Grief. Grief, yeah. God was grieved that he had made man. Now, you know what we do? We hear something like that, and we go, ooh, theological charlie horse. Don't like that. Grieve must mean something other than grieve. Because after all, God is sovereign. My view of the sovereignty of God is that God works out all things after the counsel of his will. My view of the sovereignty of God is that God has actually predestined all things whatsoever comes to pass. So I've got a, this comprehensive view. It's not like it's 90%. It's 100%. God's absolutely sovereign. What does God know? God knows absolutely everything, both uh, both real and uh, potential. God knows everything. So he's sovereign. He's omniscient. He's got all power. And so here's, here's the question. How in the world could God actually grieve knowing that he would create man and actually... Know 
not just knowing that the flood would happen, but I think you could even say in the eternal counsel of God, decreeing that the flood would happen. All right. So the, so what happens is theologians, especially in the early church, they'd look at God as unchanging, right? He's immutable. He's sovereign. He knows everything. How in the world can he grieve? Because a person grieves, a person feels disappointment when something happens that they weren't expecting to happen. And I would just submit to you that God is of such a nature that just because these things don't fall neatly into nice little categories in our brain does not mean that we should dismiss them. I think that God, we would talk about the simplicity of God, but we could also talk about the complexity of God. I believe that God is of such a complex nature that he can both perfectly love and hate at the same time, that he can grieve and rejoice at the same time. One of the problems we have is that we think of emotions um, simply in terms of how we experience them. That's not the way that, that God experiences them. Remember what George said at the, at the panel one of his, one of the things that he said about his own counseling is, is that he thinks that people are just like him, right? Well, that's what we do with God, Psalm 50, right? You thought I was just like you. Big mistake, right? <laughs> All right. So, so we have to understand that God actually is of a complex being and nature. So, um, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. What does it say? Uh, there are six things which the Lord Seven which are an, an abomination, right? So, hate and abomination, by the way, are emotive words. You cannot get away from the emotional element in these words. Whether it's grief, whether it's, whether it's hate, whether it's abominate. Um, Isaiah 42, God actually, this is my son in whom my soul delights. Okay? Delight is, has an emotional element to it. If you actually try to suck the emotion out of the word delight, you no longer have what you can call delight. All right? Um, think of the way God communicates. Isaiah 49, when he talks about, um, uh, he's talking to Israel and he's telling Israel, I, I've not forgotten you, Israel. I've not forgotten you. And then what is the comparison that he makes? Can a mother forget her child? Can a nursing mother forget her suckling babe? Even if these should forget, I will not forget you. You're, you are written on the palm of my hand. Now, why in the world would God use an analogy of a mother and a child, which is, which is the deepest human bond of affection that we know in this life. I would submit to you because God wants to communicate that he has such a deep love and affection for his people that that is, that is one of the ways in which he lisps his love to us. Uh, there are other passages, uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 I rejoice over you with loud singing. I'm quiet over you in my love. I mean, think about that kind of language. Have you ever thought about God singing? Why do we sing? We usually sing because we are happy, right? It's like one of my uh, pastor friends, Art Azurdia, came and preached at our church once, and he had just got back from Africa, and he said, 
He said, man, the churches I were in, they sing. They sing. And when I asked them, why do you sing? They said, because when we're happy, we sing. And when we're not happy, we sing until we get happy. All right? So so there's something about singing. And here's God. He is singing over his people with this, this loud reverberating cry of enthusiasm and joy. And then it says, and he's quiet over us in his love. Remember, years ago, I was preaching this passage, and um, I had... Um, was going through the book of Zephaniah and I, I had that final section there and I was looking at this, that this, this phrase, he was quiet over us in his love. And you notice in different translations it deals with that one line in verse 17 in many different ways. Every once in a while an experience kind of shines a little light on, on part of scripture. You ever have that happen? You go, oh, okay, that, you know, it's not just pure analysis. There's something about it. The light goes on. So I'm wrestling with this. He's quiet over us with his love. And um, that, at that time, my oldest son was five years old. And I walked into his room, and he'd gone to bed, and he was sleeping. And, and I just stood there and just looked at him. And I thought, man, I thought to myself, he is so well-behaved when he's asleep. This is, you know. But I just looked at him, and I, I, didn't, I didn't say a word. I didn't say a word, but as I looked at him without a word, my heart was just overflowing with a sense of love for this little, this little fallen son of Adam that God had blessed me with. And in that moment, quiet over us in his love, I thought, maybe, maybe, just maybe, that is what he's talking about. So we, we could actually multiply these examples. There are dozens and dozens of examples where the whole panorama of emotion is expressed by, by God. And, uh, and so, since I'm speaking to such a theologically astute group like you guys, you don't come to an IBCD conference and just think you're going to skate with some, uh, past some theological issues. Some of you might be thinking, well, what about the statement in the confession that says, that God is without passion and parts. Okay? You ever heard of the doctrine of divine impassibility? That's the idea that God is without passion or passion being the older word for emotion. Now, I would, I would submit to you that when the confession, the Westminster Confession, talked about God being without passion or parts, that it was not a denial of divine emotivity, it was actually a denial that God was subject to passion. Okay? Now, I got a few uh, statements here. Um, one, Don Carson, Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Don Carson actually points out that when we reduce God's emotions to what would be anthropopathisms, Remember, anthropomorphism is to attribute to God 
um, the form of a human, so God's hand, God's arm. Well, we know that God doesn't really have a hand or an arm. We know that what Scripture is doing is, in a sense, it's condescending to us using uh, something that we're familiar with so that we can get a picture of what he's doing. So God's arm is a symbol of his strength, and his hand is a symbol of his activity, his eye is a symbol of his knowledge, and so forth. And so what some theologians have done under the guise of divine impassibility is to say, well, emotions that are attributed to God are not anthropomorphisms, but anthropopathisms. That is human emotion attributed to God, but they're not real. Don Carson says to reduce God's emotions as anthropopathisms is a mistake. And he says, quote, the price is too heavy. You may then rest in God's sovereignty, but you can't rejoice any longer in his love. You may rejoice in a linguistic expression that is an accommodation of some reality of which we cannot conceive, couched in the anthropopathism of love. And then he says in very Don Carson-like way, give me a break. The great... Princeton theologian Charles Hodge makes a very similar point. He says the schoolmen, that's the um, the um, scholastic scholars of the medieval period, and often philosophical theologians tell us that there's no feeling in God. This, they say, would imply passivity or susceptibility of impression from without, which it is assumed is incompatible with the nature of God. Here again, we have to choose between a mere philosophical speculation and the clear teaching of the Bible and of our own moral and religious nature. Love of necessity involves feelings, and if there be no feeling in God, there can be no love. And so I would submit to you that the first pillar of our foundation here is that God himself has perfect, holy emotions. Okay? Now, we don't relate all that well to either the perfect or the holy part, right? Because most of the time, frankly, at least the times that catch our attention, most of the time when we do experience emotion, and I'd say we experience emotion far more than we we actually identify, but when we do, it it often is not a pretty experience. Right? Sometimes those emotional displays reflect some, um, some real negative stuff in us, some real sinful stuff. But God himself has perfect holy emotion, and he expresses those emotions perfectly and Holily, he's never subject to them, which, of course, that's one of our problems is that we feel subject to them. Um, and God is always in complete, complete control. So that's part of the foundation. Next part of the foundation is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This this to me is one of the most compelling parts of the whole argument of the centrality importance of the emotion, because first of all, consider this. Jesus himself is, in fact, the perfect reflection of God's nature, right? So what does he say to Philip? Philip says, hey, show us the Father. That's enough for us. Jesus says, have I been with you so long? Philip, don't you know when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. 
Paul could refer to the Lord Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Why does God prohibit his people from making an image? Not because he is image-less, but because he already has an image, and it's in his Son. The Son is the image of the Father. The way the writer to the Hebrews puts it is, he is the exact representation of his nature, and he is the effulgence or the outshining of God's glory. So, the Lord Jesus, even in the incarnation, is the perfect reflection of the nature and character of God. But Jesus not only perfectly reflects God's nature, Jesus also is perfect humanity. Think about this. Here is our Lord Jesus in the incarnation, second person of the Godhead, becomes human in the incarnation, takes upon himself a real human nature, becomes 100% human with one grand exception, of course, without sin, vitally important for this if you think about it, right? And so Jesus in the incarnation possesses and displays what? The entire range of human emotion. Does Jesus ever get angry? Did Jesus ever grieve? Was he ever troubled in spirit? Did he ever rejoice in the Holy Spirit? Yeah, Luke chapter 10. Um, did he ever express compassion? By the way, compassion is an emotive word. You can't, you can't escape it. So, um, by the way, if you love theology, let me suggest to you B.B. Warfield, classic article, The Emotional Life of our Lord. It's in the uh, P&R edition of the person and work of Christ, the emotional life of our Lord. Now, what Warfield does masterfully goes through the New Testament and then he makes the observation that the emotion that is preeminent in the life of, of the Lord Jesus is compassion. Okay, That's the preeminent um, emotion. And so, here we have the Lord Jesus who perfectly reflects the Father, Right? He didn't just reflect the Father when he was thinking or just reflect the Father when he was doing. He reflected the Father perfectly and comprehensively. He also is man as man ought to be. And I would submit to you that as you read the pages of the Gospels, Jesus displays the full spectrum of human emotion and he does it perfectly. Never once did he sin even when he was angry. Brings us to the third part of the foundation, and that is the image of God. So since God has emotions and we're made in his image, and since Jesus perfectly uh, displays the Father and he had emotions, and Jesus is the perfect image bearer as man and had emotion, then not only do we say uh, derivatively as image bearers, the emotions are an inherent part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. We can also look to the Lord Jesus who displayed emotions as they are supposed to be displayed. So, we conclude that the emotions are an integral part of what it means to be a human being in the, made in the image of God. And I would say that this is a critical Piece of counseling. John Sale had as his title um, something about Paul's soul 
care. Sometimes That's what the Puritans would call counseling, soul care, right? If we're going to care for souls, people made in the image and likeness of God, we have to understand that man has a mind, a will, and he has emotions. And if we ignore those, we will be worse off. Now, what do we make of this idea that the Bible actually doesn't command us how to feel? I, when people say that, I often ask myself, uh, did they read their Bible? Uh, I've heard that before. I just read a quote to you from uh, from the manual um, that God never commands how we feel. And yet the fact of the matter is, is that we're told to have joy or to rejoice. Now, the last thing that we want to do is to reduce, let's say, joy to an emotion. But we also don't want to suck the emotion out of the idea of joy because then you'd no longer actually have joy. So does the Bible tell us to rejoice? Yeah. Um, What about forgive? You go, aha, see, this is where you're you're going astray, Borgman, because forgive is, that's just, that is a, that's a mental transaction that you make. And I would say, well, what what do we actually think Jesus means when he says in Matthew 18:35, and so my heavenly Father will do to each one of you who does not forgive his brother from his heart. Okay. You know, one of the biggest challenges in raising kids is you know, you're trying to teach them to do the right things, but you can't you can't make them do the right things from the right motives, can you? So we we made a big deal when our kids were growing up. We'd say stuff like this. Um, you know, when, when you sin against your brother or your sister, you, you need to not just say, I'm sorry. You actually have to say, I was wrong. This is what I did. Please forgive me. Okay? You ask for forgiveness. So you know what this turned into, right? I was wrong, sissy. I took your quarter. Please forgive me. I was wrong. Dad, he doesn't mean it. (laughs) He doesn't mean it. I can't make him mean it, but guess what? The Bible says he better mean it. Is that not right? So if if I if I sin against somebody and um, and I just you know say um, or somebody sins against me and I just say uh, you know oh yeah well I forgive you and then on the inside I'm thinking you are a scoundrel and I hate your guts okay but I forgive you okay <laughs> it doesn't work that way it just doesn't and so the Bible commands us forgive from the heart. Now, I'm not saying any of this is easy. Now, what about love? So this is, this is the way I was taught uh, Christian love as a, as a brand new Christian, is that uh, Christian love was just a positive act of your volition. That's, that was the definition of Christian love, positive act of your volition. So you're just doing something nice. And so we have all of our pop <laughs> Christian songs that say, you know, love is not a feeling. And we've got, you know, just on and on it goes. And, um, and I think to myself, have we not paid attention to how the Bible actually says we are to love each other? We're to love each other with brotherly love fervently. Fervently. How do you love somebody fervently 
without engaging the emotions. Now, again, I'm not saying that it's easy, and I'm not saying there's a formula. I'm just saying that the Bible commands us not only that you're to love, but it actually tells us how we are to love. We are to love fervently from the heart. What about fear? Does the Bible command us to fear? And the answer is yes. And does fear involve the emotions? And the answer is yes. All of these are emotive words. What about peace? Peace, of course, is is bigger than the emotions, but it's not less than the emotions. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. What about zeal? Romans 12, 11. Paul tells us to boil with zeal. Take the emotion out of that and what do you have? Really, I mean, seriously. How, how, how can Paul command us to boil with zeal? And you go, well, the only way he could actually do that is if, of course... It has nothing to do with the emotions because you can't, can, you can't command the emotions. By the way, the underlying premise of why you can't command the emotions is because we cannot presumably control the emotions. We could go on and on. Um, desire. Earnestly desire the pure milk of the word. Is, does that engage the heart? Does that engage the emotion? The answer is yes. What about uh, tenderheartedness? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. <laughs> Try to be tender-hearted to somebody. Here, do, do this. Next time you go to the hospital to visit somebody who's sick, what I want you to do is I want you to tell them, I am here because I have a duty to you <laughs> to be tender-hearted. Now, I frankly don't feel anything for you (laughs) but i'm here and i'll read you a psalm and we'll pray okay what 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 kind of person would that be right but yet we're told to be tender-hearted um what about mourn with those who mourn weep with those who weep so the Bible's full of this um, self-control, sober-mindedness. And so here's, here's the answer. Yes, God does care about how we feel. And as we're talking to people and trying to give them biblical counsel and direction for their lives, we need to remind them that God actually does care about how you feel. God cares whether you are repulsed by your husband or whether you have feelings of love for him. God wants you to do the right thing, but he also wants you to think the right thing and feel the right thing. So, what's the big problem then? Well, the big problem actually is that we're fallen in Adam and we're fallen, our sin has corrupted every faculty of our being. So, has sin affected your mind? Yeah, that's a no-brainer, right? I mean, I mean, nobody would, would want their thoughts put up on this screen even over the last, you know, just, what, hour? That's being generous, right? Okay? Nobody wants that because we know sin has affected our minds and it's affected our minds in a, in, a, in a multitude of ways. Has sin affected our wills? Absolutely. So that the idea that somehow I'm just a neutral person that uh, is going to exercise my will um, in some sort of objective way, that's a myth. We know that. The Bible tells us that we don't just have a neutral will. Sin has has not only polluted the mind, it's corrupted the will. 
but has not sin also defiled and corrupted the emotions? Absolutely. So Jeremiah the prophet says, Jeremiah 2.13, Be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, O earth. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns which hold no water. 17.9, the heart is desperately what? Wicked. Who can know it? So, so here's, I, I don't even know the death. By the way, heart is more of a comprehensive inner man word that, that takes into account mind, will, and emotion or affection. So my heart is desperately sick. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, thanks be to God, he actually knows my heart. But here's, here's the bottom line. Um, we are born into this world loving darkness rather than light, John 3.19. So we come into this world as a profound train wreck. The mind does not work in the way that honors God. The will does not work in the way that honors God. And the emotions do not work in a way that honors God. God actually created us with our faculties, mind, will, emotions, to actually work in concert with each other so that the emotions respond to proper thinking that then motivate the will. And so there's a sense in which it's supposed to work in harmony, in concert with each other. And we come into this world and and we're upside down and we're backwards and we're twisted up. We're short-circuited. We have either these, um, these power surges of emotions or these brownouts of emotion and we are we are a mess one of my favorite scottish theologians is a guy named thomas boston he has a book called man in his fourfold state and um, I, i read this quote almost 25 years ago and it has stuck with me the man the natural man's affections are wretchedly misplaced he is a spiritual monster His heart is where his feet should be, fixed on the earth. His heels lifted up against heaven, which his heart should be set on. His face is towards hell, his back towards heaven. Therefore, God calls him to turn. Listen to this. He loves what he should hate, and he hates what he should love, joys in what he ought to mourn for, and mourns for what he should rejoice in, glories in his shame, is ashamed of his glory, abhors what he should desire, and desires what he should abhor. We suffer from all kinds of emotional maladies that stem from our sin. All right? The whole, the whole range. We're not talking about just anger. We're not talking about just this sin or that sin. We're talking about this entire spectrum that, that, that we are impacted have you ever had the experience where you thought somebody did you wrong? You didn't actually have evidence that they had done you wrong. People around you were telling you they didn't do you wrong. But the more you thought about the wrong that you think they did, the more anger and bitterness 
rise up in your heart and then the anger and the bitterness does what? It fuels the thinking that they really must have done me wrong. And it turns into this incredibly vicious cycle. That's just one example. There are, there are so many issues that come to us, not only in our own lives, but in the people that come to us for counseling. And, and, and there is um, such a confused, tumultuous relationship between the mind, the heart, and the will. And so, the question is, how in the world do we try to deal with this? Now, I think actually the Bible is completely sufficient for giving us clear guidance and direction for handling the emotions. All right? That's, that's the next workshop. But I want to uh, conclude this part with just an appeal that we deal with people as whole people. Okay? We deal with people as whole people, which means we take into account every part of their being. I'm looking forward to hearing Jim's message on nature and nurture. Okay. I wish I could hear George's workshop on inner man, outer man. Did you see that? Because do you have to take into account a person's physical condition when you're counseling? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we can actually be very, very counterproductive if we ignore certain physical issues. That's just, that's just a simple fact. All right? Um, we'd want to make sure that a person had a, a proper medical diagnosis. Okay? There was a man in our church, for instance, and he had um, no... Um, Attraction, physical attraction for his wife, and it was harming their marriage. And for a few years, we dealt with this man. And you, you know, th- and this this is this is my this is to my shame. I I always thought this guy must be guilty of doing sexual sin that has completely taken away his uh, sexual attraction to his wife somewhat logical conclusion. Well, then he started falling a lot. And um, remember at a Memorial Day softball game, he came across home plate and it was his, his legs just went out and he did a face plant right on home plate, did not even have the physical ability to put his hands down. At that point, we started to realize something was wrong. Well, then he started going through a bunch of tests and then come to find out he had a nerve issue that actually not only was affecting his legs, but also was affecting other things. Could I have come down really uh, heavy on him saying, listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, buddy, your wife is dying. She needs you. Fess up. Tell me what you're doing. Okay. We realize, hey, we got to take into account the physical part of a person, right? 
I shared last night, uh, our adopted son was born, and when his birth mother was pregnant, she drank for the entire pregnancy. We know as a physiological fact that when that alcohol goes through the bloodstream, it goes through the baby, it delays the development of the frontal lobe, which ends up having huge impact on certain behavioral elements of a child's life. Okay? As biblical counselors, don't freak out because somebody says the word syndrome. He couldn't sequence things. And so we spanked him for years because we'd say, go uh, put your pajamas on, clean your room, brush your teeth, come out for family worship. And then we'd go into the bathroom and he'd be sitting there with his toothbrush sprinkling the mirror with the water and not in his pajamas and no room cleaned up. And so I looked at that as just disobedience. And then you come to find out that actually what we were doing is we were giving him too many things to do at once and he would get confused. And the only thing he could remember is he's supposed to brush his teeth and then he gets sidetracked on that. You talk about feeling pretty crummy. Realize spanking your kid for something that we should have learned should be go to your room and put your pajamas on. Period. Oh, pajamas are on. Now go back to your room. Clean up, right? So we want to recognize there are physical elements. We also realize that, and this is where we excel, I think, in terms of what we try to do with the Bible. We, we listen to people, hopefully we listen to people, and, 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 and we see that they're thinking wrong, or we see that they're making wrong decisions, and so we take our understanding of God's Word, we diagnose those issues, right? And so then what do we do? We kind of lay out a plan for them based on the Scripture of how they're supposed to respond, and, and that's great. That's right and good. And then we turn around and we forget that there is an internal motivating factor that we've not dealt with yet. And so I would appeal to us to deal with the whole person. The emotions can actually be a great impediment to progress. All right. Um, because they're fallen, they affect us. But um, oftentimes, I would, I would say the emotions are actually the, one of the hardest things to deal with in, in counseling. The emotions are related to thinking, perceiving, evaluating, valuing, and the emotions in, in, turn around and influence us, uh, motivate us, our actions and our decisions. And so here, I would just say, the emotions can actually be a huge impediment. You might think, you know what, I've told them all the right things. I've got the books, I've checked the scripture references, I've given them the right things to do, and you might actually be missing the fact that their biggest impediment is not that they don't know what to do. In fact, let's face it, most of the time when people come in to talk to us, they know what they're supposed to do before they even get there. Is that not right? And so when we, when we, when we, bypass the emotions, we end up actually doing them no favors. Uh, The corollary, of course, is that the emotions can be a great impetus to lasting change. My uh, my oldest son, I I love my kids with all my heart, and my oldest son made a profession of faith, and and um, but he's always been just kind of a He's a hard worker, but there's sort of an indifference 
in his heart, sort of a laziness in his heart. So you know what I pray? I pray, God, I ask that you would please give him a passion and a zeal in his heart for Christ. Why? Because that passion and that zeal actually can be a tremendous catalyst to lasting change in other areas of his life. The Holy Spirit can use the Word of God to actually transform the emotions. Okay. We'll talk about that in the in the other workshop, but um, I, I want to read something to you. There was a lady that came to our church, and, and she knows that I tell this story. And, and I mean, I put it in a book, so she definitely <laughs> knows I told tell this story. <laughs> but uh, she uh, she she frequently um, was a depressed person, and um, very cynical, very critical, and not very. She had flurries, all right? And she asked if she could start a women's theology group where they read theology together and discussed it. Said, hey, great, right? We're all theologians, right? We're just either good ones or bad ones, okay? <laughs> after, after three years, they went through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology from cover to cover in three years, let me just read this to you, and let me as a testimony of what I'm talking about here. She writes, studying theology has brought me incredible joy. Okay, so you got that? Incredible joy. Knowing God better and spending more time in his presence and beholding his beauty and glory make me happy and content in a way I have never known before. Studying theology is gradually bringing together into one coherent whole all the strands of teaching and Bible reading of 30 plus years. Everything is making much more sense both biblically and in life. Hearing the doctrine of God preached has made me mentally and emotionally healthier. I rarely suffer any more from depression like I used to. A deep joy in the Lord is mine. The Holy Spirit can and does use His Word through preaching, through biblical friendship, through counseling to transform the emotions. And when that does happen, it is a catalyst to change in so many different areas. I see the fruit of this lady's life to this day. And she wrote that a number of years ago, still a part of our church. And I see the fruit in her life and I rejoice. And so, just as Scripture is brought to bear in diagnosis and prognosis of sins of the heart, we need to apply this to the emotions as well. Well, that's all I have for you for this hour. We have like three minutes. And so, are there any questions, comments, protests, riots, demonstrations, public outbursts, or letters to the editor? <laughs> that book by Thomas Boston, what was the It's called Man in His Fourfold State. Oh. Yeah, you know, people have told me in the past, well, you just need to fake it till you make it, that whole thing. And that, <laughs> that just, just great on me. They were, so how would you respond to someone who said, well, you just need to fake it till you make it? Wow, fake it till you make it. Right, right, sure, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, um, I hope that person doesn't tell their husband that. Um, what a crushing thing, right? Yeah. Right? Crushing thing. 
I would I would say that the, this is a little simpler than sometimes what we make it. So person doesn't feel like doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, by the way, the wonderful plenary session tomorrow is caring when you don't feel like caring. And I resent Craig Marshall to this day for telling me that that was my subject. All right? Now, I'm really, really struggling with resentment. <laughs> um, I think that what we do in, in those kinds of cases, we don't tell people fake it till you make it. What we do is we tell people, do you, do you actually recognize that, that the lack of these emotions or these negative emotions are actually sinful? Do you see that? Okay. Um, now, what, what do we do when we see sin in our life? Well, we confess it. So I need to actually confess to God, I don't feel like loving my husband or whatever it is, right? And then I think that it's very important that we, that we tell people, listen, don't, don't be at peace. Don't make a peace treaty with this uh, emotional malaise that you're in. This, this is just as much warfare as anything else, right? And so you make sure you confess it. You try to turn from it. You ask God to give you the heart. Now, the other thing that people often will say in that kind of context is, well, if I don't feel like doing the right thing, then I shouldn't do the right thing because my motives aren't right. Have you ever heard that, right? Okay, well, after you lovingly slap that person. Uh, <laughs> no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't joke like My wife says, you know what, you shouldn't joke like that. And I'm like, I know, but I... No. I <laughs> I always know when I'm preaching and I look down and she's like, but I think that what we need to tell people is, listen, if uh, I've had people say something like this, you know what? I I woke up um, and I didn't feel like coming to church this morning and I didn't want to be a hypocrite. So what I will tell them is, listen, if you wake up and you don't feel like coming to church, you have to actually put that in perspective. Here is the God of the universe who's created all things, upholds all things by the word of his power. He is great, glorious, transcendent, and absolutely worthy of us to gather together as the people of God and render him praise and hear his word. He is absolutely worthy. So the fact that you didn't feel like doing what is the highest purpose of humanity is a sin. So what you should have done is you should have said, Lord, forgive me for not feeling like coming and worshiping you this morning, please help me. And then you get up, you get dressed, and you come to church. Okay? Now, we often find that power comes in the doing. Right? Okay. So, yeah. Could you distinguish it all between emotions and affections? I've kind of heard that differentiated, I guess. Yeah. um, Sometimes... um, there's a, and I'm not an expert in, 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 in this part of it, but there's a, a debate that goes on between the, the um, uh, anthropology of, let's say, a John Owen versus a Jonathan Edwards, and there would have been um, what they would call faculty psychology, which is sort of a, a more of a Scottish view. And it's, it's very, it's complicated. And so uh, some people would say that the affections and the emotions are different. I would basically say this, is that the affections would be the larger category under which the emotions fit. They're certainly related. 
So affections are, are directly expressed in my likes and my hates, my, what I'm attracted to, what I'm repulsed by. Those things are properly affections, right? Well, those things manifest themselves in feelings or emotions. And so that's basically, I'll use the terms interchangeably, but I think on a technical level, that, that's probably the relationship, you know. So, all right. Yeah. You mentioned that um, at the beginning that um, it said widely that love is not a feeling, but then you have to love fervently, brotherly love and things like that. Um, you know, when we experience, um, you know, falling in love with someone, we feel the emotion, we feel the excitement. And um, when we're around family members that we are to love, um, if you don't feel it, are you... Are you still loving that person by doing what God is asking you to do? I mean, how can you distinguish the emotion when certain emotions are just there, the love emotion is there? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, that, that's a really good question because Paul talks, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 of doing some, some pretty virtuous things, right? Giving my possessions to the poor, giving my body to be burned, if I don't have love, counts for nothing. So I want to be really careful to say that, on the one hand, the emotions play an important part in those relationships. All right. Now, by emotion, I'm not talking about necessarily giddy feelings or things like that. Right? Um, even in marriage, those things those things fluctuate. Right? Um, hopefully, they they deepen and and become more seasoned and 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 beautiful and experienced and all of that. Um, but if if I am just flat out indifferent to the people that I should love, um, I want to make sure that I don't add sin to sin by not treating them kindly and that kind of thing. But I also need to realize, you know what, there's something that's going on right now that is inside of me that I need to take a look at and try to deal with because my emotions reflect or express those values or evaluations. And so if I'm just completely indifferent, I might want to just say, you know, what, what is it that I've not, you know, and, and what, I, what I do seriously is if I, um, uh, I have one sister and if I find that I have just sort of just become a, a little detached and, and unconcerned about her, um, I will actually just start praying for her. And what I find is it's really hard to remain indifferent towards somebody when you are sincerely bringing them before the throne of grace. Okay? All right. Well, you guys have been great. And... Um, Let's pray, and uh, if you could remember to pray for me tonight, I will be doing the plenary session on caring as Christ cares, and I would covet you praying for me and asking God to help me. All right. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power, its sufficiency, its perfection. And, Father, we also thank you that you have given us wonderful opportunities to help people through your word. We pray that we would that we would never take that privilege for granted. And yet, Lord, we pray that we would be so determined to truly help people for your glory and praise that we would try to understand them the best that we can biblically and that we would be able to help them the best that we can biblically. And so we commit ourselves to you as fallen people ourselves. 
Lord, people that often struggle with the very same things people are talking to us about. And we pray that you would give us hearts of compassion. And we ask this for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.